Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Today is the fourth part in our sermon series going verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Romans. We're continuing in Romans 9, and our section for today is chapter 9, verses 6 through 13, found in the Pew Bible on page 1202. Now Paul, if you remember from last week, is taking us from the heights of the end of Romans 8 to the depths of anguish he feels in chapter 9, verse 2, where he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. The glories of the gospel of Romans 5 to 8 are held together with the unceasing concern for the Apostle Paul, for his kinsmen according to the flesh, that they might be saved. But they are not saved. And this raises the question of verse 6, has the word of God failed? Now, some of you may remember from your youngest days of being a Christian believer, how the scriptures that had previously been a book to you seemed to become a voice to you. It wasn't so much that you read them, but that they spoke to you. And if your experience were anything like mine, they were verses that leapt off the page, and they seemed so astonishingly important and relevant. And there were all these great texts that mature Christians would quote. You would try and think, where is that in the Bible? One of those texts for me is Isaiah 55.11. I remember back in my younger days, people saying to me when there was not much evidence in evangelism or, or ministry seemed to languish, they'd say, ah, well, God's word will not return to him void. That was the old King James Version. But it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. And that verse has been a great encouragement for me over these difficult years, seeking to bear witness to the gospel right here at St. Mary's. God's word will fulfill its purpose It will never return void. It's a wonderful promise. God's promises never fall to the ground. But that's exactly Paul's problem. Because by everything he can see, it tells him that God's promises have fallen to the ground. Here, he is a converted Jew, and he finds himself in synagogue after synagogue, preaching the gospel, proving that Jesus is the Messiah, and the very people to whom God had made his ancient promises are the ones who are rejecting the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus Christ. And the question has come up because he's an honest man, and he's an honest student of the scriptures. He doesn't just give spin when he believes that God's word will not return to him empty. But when he sees that God's promise to his ancient people doesn't seem to be being fulfilled, the question arises in his heart, has God's word eventually failed? 
This was no small thing to him. These were his own people, and he knew his Bible. He knew the promise God had given to Abraham was an everlasting promise in Genesis 17. God's promise to Abraham would never fail throughout all eternity that he would be Abraham's God and God and the God of Abraham's descendants. And earlier in the letter, Paul had commented on the fact that the promise comes through grace so that it might be guaranteed. That's so important to remember because Paul feels the weight of the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures as he preaches the gospel and the descendants of Abraham are rejecting that gospel. And so he is absolutely broken hearted. The question arises so vividly in his mind that he begins to answer it even before he mentions it. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. Now that's an important question for us too as we've read through Romans 8. Because where Paul has brought us in Romans 8 is this. When God gives us his promise, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's where he took us. And we were elated at the end, standing with Paul, challenging anything in the universe to separate us from the God who keeps his promises. And the reason I say this is an important issue for us is because if God hasn't kept his promise to Israel, then how can I be sure he will keep his promise to me? You see, it was possible for an Old Testament believer to say, nothing can separate me from the love of Jehovah. But what's going on now? It doesn't seem to be working out. My dear friend, if the word of God has not stood firm for God's ancient people, then we can have no confidence that the word of God will stand firm for us. There is something so important for us to learn here of the God of the scriptures. We've all been there where the promises of God seem to be trumped by the circumstances of life. So Paul can be a great help to us. Let's see how he does it. First, there's Paul's response to the question in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. I want you to notice how Paul gives a de decisive answer, which we have seen before, almost without having to stop to think. The Apostle Paul has something like biblical membranes in his being that seem to carry him almost instinctively to the right biblical answer. It's not as though the word of God has failed. As a matter of fact, the word not is the first word of the sentence in the Greek original. That's very unusual to begin a sentence with the word not. It's actually grammatically uh, well, bending the rules to say not. You can almost sense that he is talking to himself as much as he is talking to anybody else who says, Look, look Paul, it's obvious the word of God has failed. Your gospel can't be right, because look at what has happened to your gospel. And Paul says, with every instinct of his being, not. The word of God has not failed. And he is simply echoing those words of Isaiah 55.11. But it's one thing to give an instinctive answer. 
because an instinctive answer could be totally prejudiced. And many of our instinctive answers are totally prejudiced. It's one thing to say, no, that could never be. It's another thing to answer the deeper question. Well, how is it that it could never be? So he turns very quickly from his decisive answer at the beginning of verse 6 to a theological explanation in verses 6 and 7. So what is the explanation? Let's have a look. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all those who are naturally descended from Israel are really God's Israel. Now, that is a brilliant answer to the question. There are Jews who believe, and there are Jews who are rejecting the gospel. How is it that the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to Israel are standing firm? Because not all those who are the natural descendants to Israel belong to Israel. It's a very simple answer, and it solves all the problems. John Flavel said it like this, If Abraham's faith is not coursing through our hearts, then Abraham's blood coursing through our veins is going to do us no good whatsoever. But on what grounds does Paul say this? That's what makes this such a brilliant answer, because he grounds it precisely on the Scriptures. This is so important. He grounds it precisely on the basis of the Scriptures, and he's going on to demonstrate that to us. Now, here's a striking thing. At this point, the Apostle Paul is simply saying what all the prophets had said. It is one thing to be circumcised, they would say, that is, to belong to the nation, but it is a very different thing to experience the circumcision of the heart that God has promised to do by the power of his Holy Spirit. John the Baptist also said this, You speak about being children of Abraham, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And it was our Lord Jesus Christ who made the sharpest statement on this of any in the scriptures. Here's what he said, You may claim Abraham is your father, you may have the right genes and lineage. But unless you believe in me, you are not the children of Abraham. You are the children of the devil. So, as Paul gives an explanation for his answer, that the promise of God has not fall, fallen, he is not standing alone in Scripture. He wants to point out to us that this is true that not all those who are naturally Israel are born of the Israel of God because God's sovereign electing purposes to create a people have been working all throughout history from the moment he gave his promise. And that's what he turns to next in verses 7 to 12. This is his scriptural argument. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. You see, Paul takes us to Genesis chapter 21, 12 here, and then he goes on. But, though Isaac, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, 
but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. God said to Abraham, I am going to create a great people through you. But he says that people is going to be called through one of your sons exclusively, and not through the other. So you understand the promise God has made. He keeps, because when he makes that promise to Abraham, he already distinguishes between the seed of Hagar, that's Ishmael, and the seed of Sarah and Isaac. And God said through Isaac, I will bring saving blessing to the nations. Now I want you to notice that there is a very obvious explanation for this. God decided it would be Isaac and not Ishmael because Ishmael's mother was an Egyptian and a slave. And Ishmael was illegitimate and he mocked Isaac. That would be logical, wouldn't it? You could tell why he was not the chosen one. Now my friend, you don't want to go there, do you? That God limits his purposes to those who are only legitimately born, or what their mother had been? We must not make this point that there is something in Ishmael. So in order to drive that point home, Paul uses an illustration from the next generation in Jacob and Esau. So let's go on. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You see, what's different about this is that these boys had the same father and the same mother. I want you to notice how these boys were still in the womb simultaneously, and they were twins, and then as though to press the point home before either of them had done anything, either good or bad. You see that? Nothing, either good or bad. Rather, in order that God's electing purpose might be fulfilled. Rebecca is told the older will serve the younger. The point Paul is making here is that God's sovereign election has got nothing whatsoever to do with anything in either of these two boys. It is stunning, but it is absolutely vital we grasp this or we don't really fully grasp the wonder of the gospel. God's choice of Jacob and his passing by of Esau has nothing to do with any qualities that God saw or foresaw in either of them. Rather, God actually overturned the whole natural order of things to demonstrate what he is doing here, is pursuing the purposes of his own sovereign election. Paul's point is that this is not new. The scriptures have taught this from the very beginning, and he forces it home in one last scripture from Malachi, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. 
This is such a vital teaching. For it is right here that the Christian wants to talk back to Paul without thinking it through. This is not that God loved Jacob and loved Esau a little bit less. Why do I say that? Because, my dear friend, you want to argue with Paul. We want to say this. But Paul, there must be some reason. Can't you find some reason that God chose Jacob rather than Esau? There must be something in Jacob that made the difference. But you see, Paul understands that the moment I have said that very thing, I have disgraced grace. And grace is no longer grace. It has become God's love plus my modification, which leads to God's purposes. What Paul is actually saying here, and I can prove it by verse 14, is that God's purpose to choose Jacob and leave Esau under judgment was entirely a matter of his own sovereign grace to save a man and eventually to save a people. Because everything that he has been saying in this letter up to this point has been to demonstrate that there is nothing in me that qualifies me for salvation. Nothing, nothing in me qualifies me for grace. And so you can sense how the people in Rome were so intent on keeping the works of the law. That's what Paul is saying here is that if salvation is altogether by grace, then salvation is altogether rooted in the sovereign good pleasure of an almighty God. That of instead of condemning the entire world to a holocaust, he would have mercy and call a people into being for his own praise and for his own glory. Because Jesus Christ did not die for you and me, for anything in you and me, did he? Jesus Christ didn't die for you because he was able to look down history and say, oh, that Henry Jansma, he was an arrogant rascal at 25, but by 55, well, he will be the perfect candidate for me. Any more than God would look at Ishmael and his illegitimacy, and the foolishness of his parents, and his mocking, and say, that man is out, but his brother is in. My dear friend, this is one of the most important things you and I as Christians could ever grasp. Because until this truth flattens me before God, I haven't actually begun to appreciate, nor can I finally delight in the sheer graciousness of God's grace. And the problem that I have is, Christian though I may be, I insist on smuggling something in that I am, that I have done, that I have accomplished as a regenerated Christian perhaps to say, ah God, now I know why you chose me. And just at that point, I become the Pharisee in the temple. Because I am saying to God, Oh God, I thank you for making me who I am. I fast, I pray, and I thank you for this. 
but especially, of course, because this is the reason you chose me. This is the reason I am different from that tax collector who's beating his chest, shouting, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It was the tax collector who went down from the temple who grasped the sheerness of the grace of God. My dear friends, most of our problems in the Christian life are rooted in this fact that you and I are not utterly consumed by the knowledge that God has been gracious to us if we are his. And this is perhaps the most obvious point for that tendency within us all to say, but yes, there, there is something in me that has made God gracious to me. So Paul is using history to point us to the God of history, the God of salvation, that this point is brought home to you and to me. That God drawed me into this new human family, into his family, this new humanity, not because he saw me as the right candidate for faith, not because of my work for God. Paul was willing to say dangerous things about this and to say, if you think that God's love for you is rooted in you, then you've not grasped what his grace is. His grace is for sinners who recognize that they are nothing but sinners and therefore they desperately need God's gracious choice in them in the first instance. Yes, Lord, but look at me. There's my family, surely my family, my service for the poor, Surely my position in the church. Surely others think so well of me. Surely the way I raise my children. Surely the way I go to life group. That I read my Bible. That I pray. That I give an offering. Surely the fact I witness to Jesus Christ in my workplace. Surely these are the reasons why you have looked on favor upon me and not passed me by. My dear friend, that turns the gospel on its head because that makes the fruit of the gospel the foundation of the gospel. And the evidences of grace become the causes of grace. And there is only one cause of God's electing grace, and it's God. And this is the very point that Paul brings us to stretch into the eternal purposes of God, where we find ourselves blinded by this reality because this is something we cannot control. And every single one of us, in this instance, is a control freak. No. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So here is the question. Do you really attribute all your salvation to him? Because if you attribute his love to you, to the tiniest particle of a thing in yourself, then that salvation is no longer by grace.
And as this incredible truth sinks in, I wouldn't be surprised if a question arises in your mind as you ponder this. So if you are a Christian, the reason you are a Christian this morning is entirely in God and His infinite merciful grace to you. And I know many people who are very tempted to say, just at this point, if that's the case, if it's not something that distinguishes me from Him, that leads God to be gracious to me, then God is unjust. And that is the very question that proves this is what Paul is saying, because verse 14 says exactly that. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? It's the next question Paul asks, and he wouldn't ask it if he didn't realize that there is something in the human heart that says, I want justice for me. But that's next week. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.